Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of the greatest blessings yours truly ever had was the opportunity to minister in a revival meeting with Paul Pierpoint. What a delightful man of God. He preached this message in 1989 at the Midwest Pickleholders Camp Meeting in Anderson, Indiana, and he titles it, If We Stumble. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful message. Keep passing it Shall we stand one more time, please, for the reading of God's Word? Galatians chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Appreciate the presence of the Lord, this tremendous crowd. God's been doing things for us. And uh, I believe there's yet victory to be accomplished and souls to be won. The ark is moving up the road. Praise God. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Lord, one more time visit thy people. Speak to us through thy word. May these moments together, as we study thy word, be moments of rich profit to our soul. Oh, anoint thy speaker. One more time, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Paul, in this Galatian letter, is giving some pastoral advice. He's telling his readers how they ought to treat one of their own members that have stumbled along the way. My dear brothers and sisters, there are some tremendously important truths in this little portion of Scripture. Some of the scholars tell us that really this phrase, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one, you see that here, is really a picture of, of a bone out of joint or a broken bone that needs to be put back in place or needs to be healed, needs tender care and healing. Can I stop here long enough, just pause to say, there are a lot of disjointed and broken bones in the body of the Lord that need a redemptive attention and care. Amen? Paul says, for one thing, there. There's to be no spirit of pride on our part. 
There's to be no sense of superiority over our fallen brother. We're not to look down at that one that has stumbled with any sense of self-righteousness or any sense of inner contempt toward the one that has fallen. And moreover, there's to be no forgetfulness that temptation is the lot of all mankind. And we should thrust our shoulders and lift that fallen brother, carry the burden of the shame and lift him up with an attempt to restore him and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I'm fully persuaded that many who are part of our church are acquainted with this teaching, but I'm not so sure how much of this kind of ministry is being done these days. I wonder if we are not falling or failing down, falling, failing in this ministry. Here's the one that has stumbled. Here's the one that has waylaid. Here's the one that has failed. Here's the one that has taken with a fall. What do we do? Stone him? Take a crowbar and try to get his joints back together? Take a sledgehammer and pound him to bits? Or do we try to extend a helping hand, reaching down with care and with love and with prayers? No, we're not condoning the wrong. No, we're not condoning the sin. But oh, our hearts are there with love, seeking to restore. And I believe I'm speaking to a crowd that believes us and experiences us for the most part. But the concern of my message this evening is not how we treat someone else that has been taken with a fault or a sin. I want to be more personal. I want to ask tonight a personal question. How do you handle your own failures? How do you handle yourself when you're overtaken with some area of failure or weakness or in some cases maybe outward sin? What happens when you are found short? What happens when you are caught in a trap? What happens when there is a spiritual lapse in your life? What happens when there is a breakdown in some area in your life? What happens when there's some form, some degree of spiritual failure in your life? I want to talk to you tonight on a very delicate, but I think a very important subject. What to do if you stumble? What to do if you stumble? Now, at the very outset of my message tonight, I want to be heard to be said with no uncertain sound. The person that is born of God, he goes out of the sin business. Did you hear me? The person that is born of God, he goes out of the sin business. Having the receiving the forgiveness of God and the regenerating power of God, his sins are forgiven and the grace of God is sufficient to help us to live victorious in this wicked age. The whole pattern of our life is not a sinful pattern. No, the pattern of our life, the flow of our life is toward God, toward righteousness and holiness. Amen. 
Look at the words if you want of 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God, and please notice the Greek tense here. It's so important. No one who is born of God continues, it's a present tense, continues to sin. For his seed remaineth in him and cannot continue to sin. So I say again, the pattern of the Christian life is a pattern of victory. Hallelujah. And I want, I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this message. But on the other hand, I cannot forget something else. There's another sign to this truth. While God does not program sin into the Christian life, while God does not condone sin, while God has provided for us to be victorious over sin, yet defeat can happen in the life of a Christian. Grace can be frustrated. And when this happens, however, God, hallelujah, God has made a provision for us. Now you're looking strange at me. Now don't throw me out just yet. Hold steady. Look at John, 1 John 2, 1. This is what John is saying here. And please notice again the tenses that are here. In essence, this is what John is saying. Although he who was born of God does not continue to sin, John does raise a question. John does raise a problem. But if we do sin, if we do sin, if we do transgress, if we do come short of the glory of God, whether it's a sin of omission or a sin of commission, whatever. I want to tell you, though, there is a lawyer. There is an advocate. There is a friend we have in court. Hallelujah. If you do stumble, if you do, thank God you don't have to. Amen. But if you do stumble, thank God there's a lawyer, there's an advocate. There is Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, representing us. Hallelujah. But I want to be bluntly honest with you tonight and tell you, there is no state of grace that will exempt us in this life from the possibility of falling and failing. Amen. It always remains a possibility to fail. You and I are living in this human frail body, subject to temptations and storms and battles. Amen. And let me digress here a moment. I did not want to preach this message. I fought it. <laughs> and I saw this man's crown. I said, Lord, but the Lord has held me to this message. This message may not be for just everybody, but God has spoken and laid this truth on my heart. There's somebody out there tonight that needs this message. And the message that I'm preaching tonight is not just for this night. I'm thinking of the time when the camp lights will go off and, and the gates will close and we'll descend from the mount of camp meeting blessings and the emotion of the occasion we enjoy so much will fade and we'll go down into the humdrum valley of ordinary living. I want to tell you tonight, we live in a pressure cooker age. We live in a world that is fraught and filled and saturated with the potential of evil. It's frightening in a sense. Amen. Brother Gray, there are tragedies taking place, moral and spiritual tragedies. Homes are being broken, even getting into our own churches and our own families, and pastors are being, I tell you, it's frightening in a sense. Yes. 
Now again, I want to come back and I want to keep this in proper perspective and I want you to know this. I want you to know that grace factories are running in heaven to give us all the grace we need. Hallelujah. I want to tell you, you don't have to lose. You don't have to fail. You don't have to succumb. You don't have to be defeated. Hallelujah. But again, we're not free. I don't believe in eternal security. I don't believe in you know, little sin, thought, and deed, every day. But we're not free from the possibility of falling, of failure. All the days of our life, it's possible for us at one point or another to sin, to come short, to fail. All right, how do you handle failures? What do we do with ourselves if we stumble? Now, there are several courses of action that are often taken. On one hand, there are people who excuse their failures, gloss over their sins, and treat it lightly as if nothing happened at all and just go right on. That's not the right course. And then on the other hand, there are, so, there are some that are so engulfed in the shame of their transgression, throw everything overboard and forget the whole. They just, as the world would say, they blow it. Blew it. And that's not, I think there's another course. I know there is. There are three things, and you may want to put them down on the walls of memory, or maybe jot them down in a little flyleaf of a note that you have. There are three things we should do you may want to give them to somebody. Number one, what to do if we stumble? Number one, do not minimize the sin. Do not minimize the failure. You should never say of sin, ha, this is light, this is trivial, this is not really important. Sin is a very serious thing. Amen. The wages of sin is death. Yeah. Amen. What are we to do? Don't minimize sin. Don't make light of sin. Identify the particular action of your heart and your life. Don't excuse it. Don't cover it over. This is wrong. I stand wrong. I stand condemned. This is a failure. This is a weakness. This is a sin. I've transgressed God's law. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I want to quit the business. I turn my life to you. I turn from this loathsome deed. Don't minimize the sin. Now, to ward off feelings of guilt, to rid ourselves of guilt, it's amazing how this human brain of ours, human nature, has such clever ways to absolve ourselves from guilt. All right, that's right. You see, the soul of man always tends to protect itself, just as the physical body does. Many, many years ago, in junior high school, I remember a couple of health classes. That wasn't my favorite class. And I remember them talking about trying to describe the human body. And I think, that if I remember correctly, they talked about involuntary muscles. I don't know whether the physical body has them anymore, but back there they did. <laughs> and, and they gave an illustration of the eye. And the illustration went something like this. When, when there's an approaching danger, an object coming toward the eye, without any announcement, Seemingly, though, without much program going on, instinctively, involuntarily, that, that, that lid closes itself to protect the eye. And so the soul has its own protective agency. The soul seeks way to avoid mission, avoid mission of guilt. And I want to share this with you. There are three ways in which we tend to avoid mission of guilt. And here they are. 
The first thing we do is to tamper with the labels. Change the labels. You know, sin is never sin in my life. It's always sin in my neighbor. When he does it, it's sin. It's wrong. What are we doing? We're changing the labels. By the way, we start this, you know, when we're very young. I don't know how it was in your home, but I know how it was in our home. Now, as a young boy, I never told a lie. Never told a lie. I told a fib. I told a fib. Now, my sisters, they lied as little girls. But I never did. I, oh, I fib once in a while. But did you know there's a difference between fibbing and lying? Are you catching on? And you know, back there, they didn't call it stealing. I wasn't guilty of stealing. I call it scrounging. And, I, and there's a vast difference between scrounging and stealing, you know. What are you saying? You're changing the labels. Are you catching on? There's a little poem that speaks of this. In olden days when people heard some swindler huge had come to greet, they used, to, they used a good old facts and words and they called the man a thief. The language such as that today upon man's tender feeling grates. So they look wise and simply say, he just investigates. So when the fellow takes something that doesn't belong, he's not stealing, he's just investigating. And when he takes off with your car, he's really not stealing the car, he's just investigating your car. Changing the labels. I remember hearing a preacher tell a story, of an account of where he was invited to this great convocation of sophisticated leaders, professional people. There were doctors there, medical men there, there were counselors there, psychologists were there, and they were there for the purpose of discussing the problems of society, particularly the breakup of the human home, and the breakup of marriage, and the problem of children, unwanted children. And uh, in that crowd, how he got there, I don't know, the preacher didn't say, but there was an old country preacher that was also invited to that august assembly of leaders and professional men. This old preacher had never been to a seminary and had never seen inside of a college. And he was there with all these dignitaries as they were talking about. And they used these fantastic terms, elongated psychological terms and about describing the ills of society. And they talk about extramarital affairs and premarital affairs and alternate lifestyles and womanizing and, and all such. And the poor old country preacher was confused. He didn't know what was what was going on? He, and finally he just blurted out in his rugged way and he said, wait a minute. I like, I'm confused. Would you help me out? You, you're, you're using these terms. Would you be talking about adultery? Would you be talking about fornication? And those sophisticated people, you know, the jaws dropped. They were amazed when they were confronted with those direct statements, biblical statements, adultery and fornication. Oh, friends, we're in a day we're changing the labels, absolving ourselves of guilt. And we tend to use new labels, you know, for old evils, particularly when we're guilty of something ourselves. It's easy to change the labels and absolve ourselves of guilt. I remember the prodigal son. I think of him often as he started out on his journey. I wonder what he called it when he thought about leaving home and getting his inheritance and starting on. I think he called it independence. I wonder what he called it when he got out there in the fair country and the far country and he, he was just filled with glee and his father's substance was bringing him so much enjoyment and happiness. I don't think he called it independence. I think he called it pleasures. 
I wonder what he called it when he finally lost all his, all that he had in his substance and now he didn't have the wherewithal to, to, to buy the pleasures. I wonder what he called it. I don't think he called it independence. I don't think he called it pleasures. I think he called it bad luck. And I wonder what he called it when he finally was reduced to the level of the swine and he had to eat the food of the swine and that would be poor fare for any Jew. I wonder what he called it. I don't think he called it independence and I don't think he called it pleasures and I don't think he called it bad luck. I think he said, what a fool am I. And finally there came a time when he came to himself and he started home, thought of his father's house. And partway home, he saw that familiar figure out there on the road. It was the figure of his father and they embraced and there was joy. You know what he said? I don't think he said, I don't think he said, I don't think he called it independence. I don't think he called it pleasures. I don't think he called it bad luck. I don't think he called it, what a fool am I? You know what he said? I have sinned. I have sinned. He quit changing the labels. He quit changing the labels. He gave it the right label. I have sinned. And then secondly, don't deceive yourself by thinking that sin can never be justified by circumstances. There she's sitting in my office, wife and I. The associate minister is also there. Why? Why were you unfaithful to your husband? I can't go into all the gory details. But she turned to me and she said, Brother Pierpoint, I was lonely. I was lonely. And it stirred me. I'm not always that abrupt and blunt, but I was on that occasion. And I said, wait a minute. Can't God keep lonely people? I said, there are thousands of lonely people, but they don't go out and have affairs. And she turned to me and she said, but you don't know my circumstances. And I felt like saying, boo-hoo-hoo. Now, I know that's an extreme case, but my friends, that's the kind of thing that goes on constantly in our modern society to absolve ourselves of guilt. And we blame it on ourselves. If you only knew my circumstances, if you only knew my circumstances, oh, my friends, there'll never be healing to your soul. There'll never be blessing to your soul until you throw away the shields and all the neat rationalization systems and say, I have sinned, I have failed, this is wrong. And the third trap in which we minimize the sin is to persuade ourselves that morality varies from age to age. Of all the stupid phrases that I hear these days trying to somehow diffuse moral responsibility are phrases like this. Oh, it's so Victorian. Oh, that's so Puritanic. Oh, that's so Elizabethan. That's the ethics of another day. That's not, that's not this day. And so we tie morality to the change of time and absolve ourselves of guilt. But I want to tell you, friends, when we're dealing with the Ten Commandments, when we're dealing with the moral biblical principles, when we're dealing with the moral law of God, we're not dealing with something puritanic. We're not dealing with something that belongs to another area. We're dealing with the eternal God. tonight and I thank God for the great host of young people and for the leaders of this camp working with the young people. Young people I want to tell you, older people I want to tell you, the Ten Commandments still stand. And I don't 
care of all this Hollywood junk and stuff that's coming across the ways. I'll tell you, the Ten Commandments still stand. It was wrong to steal in Grandma's day, and it's still wrong to steal. Adultery was wrong in Grandma's day, and it's still wrong. The Word of God stands. It's eternal. It's everlasting. Lloyd Douglas tells the story about a man who gave vile lessons. He was a friend of his. And he would go to this little music hall. The man was quaint and the music hall was sort of quaint. In this music hall, there would be his little office, his little violin room, studio. Down this little narrow hall would be other studios. There would be a piano studio and, and vocal studios. And this friend of Lloyd Douglas, he, Douglas called him Prof. Prof always had a good word. He was always optimistic. He was always hopeful. Always had a good word. And he came in one day into Prof, into the violin room studio, and said, Prof, what's the good word today? Prof didn't say anything. Instead, he walked over to the corner of his room, and there in the corner of his room was a silver cord with a, with a tuning fork. Prof didn't say anything. He took his mallet and gave a firm beat on that tuning fork and emitted a piercing sound. Mr. Douglas said, what's the good word? And Prof said, that's the good word. And Douglas said, what do you mean? The thing didn't even speak. What, what's the good word? Frankly, I, I don't know what you mean. And the prophet said, that note is the good word. Do you know what that note is? And the violinist said, no, not exactly. That note is A. That's a true pitch. That's, that, that note is A. Douglas, stop. Listen. You hear that tenor down there in one of those rooms? Yeah, he's flat. You hear that? You hear that? Piano playing over there? Can you? Yeah, that piano is not in tune with itself. Do you hear that gal warbling? When she warbles, she she sharps or flats or does something. I've heard some of that. And and Prof said everything around here is discordant, but here's the A. This is true. This is the true pitch. They're off here and they're off there and they're off over here, but here's the true pitch. Are you catching on? Amen. This is A. Amen. Did you hear me? <laughs> this is A. And Satan would like to deceive you young people to believe that God is accommodating himself to the fashionable tendencies of this age and giving us some new notes. But he's not. This is A. Amen. And if you want a right pitch and you want to quit warbling, go to A. Get tuned in to A. Get pitched to A. And this was A one year ago. And this was A ten years ago. And this was A a hundred years ago. And this was A a thousand years ago. And this was A next, it will be A next year. And this will be A 10 years from now. This will be A forever. Hallelujah. And it makes no difference. The styles of ladies' hats. 
makes no difference the styles of anything else. This is A, A forever. And it makes no difference what Hollywood may say and the skeptics may say and worldly church members may say, this is A forever. This is our point of reference. Hallelujah. This is our compass. This is our chart. This is eternal. Get your pitch. Get your direction. Hallelujah. Don't you blame your guilt. Don't you blame your actions under circumstances or the changing times. There's A. What to do if you stumble? Don't minimize your failures. Don't do it by tampering with the labels. Don't do it by pleading that circumstances are different in your case. And don't do it by saying that's puritanic, that belongs to the times have changed. Are you ready? First, point number two, they've told me that this thing is reduced now to 30 minutes, this battery. I think I'm getting enough steam, I'll go right over top of it. Hallelujah. What to do if you stumble? Don't minimize your sin. On the other hand, don't memorize your sin. Are you with me? There are many people who no doubt have sensed the forgiveness of God, but they haven't forgiven themselves. The memory of the past is brutal and there's mall over it and they park by it and they brood over it and that's not healthy. As long as you sense the forgiveness of God, there she is in the office. Wife and I are there. Dolores, what's wrong? God had done a wonderful thing for Dolores. This is in my home area, my home church. Dolores as a teenager became rebellious. Went from God, went from God, went from her home, went from her father's God, mother's altar, went from the church, went into deep sin. Twenty-some years have passed. I come back to my home church as pastor. I remember some of the young people, and I begin to follow them up. When I was there as a boy, Dolores was one. I remember I found her address, knocked on the door. She met me, had nothing to do with me. She said, I heard you're in town. I felt like you because I want you to know, Paul, I want nothing to do with your God or your church. I still feel the same way. Bang. Well, as dumb as I is, I knew I wasn't wanted. But you know, I went back to the church, to the Tuesday prayer meeting crowd. I said, pray for Dolores Cook. Man, she's rebellious. She's but I believe that God can change her. And God answered prayer. Two or three weeks passed by. Early in the morning, I got a call. I could tell that the gal on the other end was broken. Oh, it wasn't Paul this time. Oh, brother Paul. Oh, brother Paul, come and see me. Something has happened. Who is this? Dolores. I did a bunch of Doloreses. Dolores who? Dolores Cook. Oh, last night I couldn't sleep. I felt like I was dropping into hell. But God has saved me. I didn't steal, rob any bank. I did fib. <laughs> I did scrounge. <laughs> I don't think I did anything, however, to put me behind bars. <laughs> Broke the speed limit a few times. Thought I was going there. But if it's all right with you, I just assumed in my whole past wasn't it written in boxcar letters for you all to see. But I want, <laughs> I want to tell you that God's grace is sufficient in spite of your uncomplimentary past. 
No matter how dark, no matter how damning, no matter how defeating, no matter how dark the spot, Jesus Christ, our Savior, can wash your sins away, place a kiss of pardon upon your soul, lift you out of the quagmire of your sin, put a song in your heart, restore you, redeem you, save you. Hallelujah. We are not to go in our strength, not by our own resolution, but by his grace, by his grace, by the energy of the Holy Spirit. I'm going overtime. You're to blame for it. You're pulling the preach out of me. I heard Dr. Roy Nicholson said it with this and a few other illustrations I'll close. Dr. Roy Nicholson, Brother White was in Reading for revival, Reading, Pennsylvania. And the pastor said, if you don't mind, I'd like to have you call on a dear sister. She's confined to the wheelchair. She's not able to get out to the meetings, but she makes a practice of praying for evangelists one hour every day. Nicholson said, I want to see the lady like that. And when he came into the house, he was taken back. And she saw it. She caught him red-handedly. She said, uh, you're probably wondering. And when he came into that house, there were knickknacks and bric-a-brats and, and, and ceramics and, and uh, vessels and vases and vases and the whole likes. I mean, little things, big things, great things. It was impressive. And she said, I'm, I'm glad you're looking at that. Brother Nichols said, let me tell you something about all of this. Every one of these things that you see displayed in the window, these vases, these ceramics, these beautiful things, when they came to me, they came in pieces. The lady next door in the, our apartment, she works at the sophisticated place downtown where they ship in ceramics and all that kind of thing from, and some are exotic and some are very expensive, but they, they break and she takes them and brings them home to me. And I just enjoy working here, cementing, putting together, filing, putting it all together. Now, Brother Nicholson, if you'll know, I put them on the shelf and, and, and you see it displayed. If you look in the back, you might see a crack or two. And Nicholson said, I was having a one-man camp meeting right there in that room. <laughs> and I suspect, and this is what he said, I suspect if you look at any one of us, you might see a hairline crack from some kind of fear in the past. But aren't you glad for the divine potter? Yeah. Hallelujah. That takes us in fragmented, broken with our failures. Amen. Puts us on the wheel. Cements us together by his blood. Files us together. Amen. Oh, I imagine you can find a crack. But thank God for the redemptive hand. Thank God for the divine potter. Thank God for the restoring grace of God. Thank God he's here tonight. I don't know where you've stumbled. I don't know how you've fallen. But Jesus Christ, the divine potter, he's here to make you. He's here to help you. He's here to restore you. Hallelujah. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855, USA. As that has been passed on.